I live in Cebu City in the Philippines. Well, my location is ideal for planetary imaging. I, I'm getting good images there. Seeing is excellent. And um, my, I also have a problem with light pollution. I basically live in the city. So um, that limits me to planetary imaging. Well, number one, I'm away from the jet stream, which is really a real bugger for planetary imaging. Yeah. Second, I'm close to the equator, which means planets are usually higher there. Yeah. And next is I'm close to the sea, which gives us the laminar flow, which stabilizes and gives us good seeing. That was amateur astronomer Christopher Goh, a planetary imager and science communicator from the Philippines who has used a variety of telescopes and imagers to take stunning pictures of the planets in our solar system. He has even used the Hubble Space Telescope to look at Jupiter. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. But anyway, uh, yeah, let's let's talk. Chris, go uh, popping into the building today, and you know, hey, it's, Chris, hi. It's not every day you have you know, arguably the best planetary imager on the planet. Just pop into the building and come do a quick tour. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Hey, I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about a lot of things. I'd imagine probably planetary imaging, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, how long have you been doing it? Well, I've been doing it since 2003. So it's been quite some time. And what got you into planetary? I mean, with all the different types of photography with space, right? Why planetary? Well, my location is ideal for planetary imaging. Right. I, I'm getting good images there. Seeing is excellent. And um, my, I also have a problem with light pollution. I basically live in the city. So um, that limits me to planetary imaging. Which city are you in? I live in Cebu City in the Philippines. In the Philippines, yeah. And so what makes that an ideal location for planetary? Well, number one, I'm away from the jet stream, which is really a real bugger for planetary imaging. Yeah. Second, I'm close to the equator, which means planets are usually higher there. Yeah. And next is I'm close to the sea, which gives us the laminar flow, which stabilizes and gives us good seeing. So it's all about air stability for planetary imaging. Yes. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit, what lucky imaging is and all of that. But um, first, you know, your point about being on the equator, it, it really makes a huge difference because for us being so far north, the planets are always very low in the horizon. You know, best case scenario, we get like 40, 45 degrees yes. or something. But for you, they're going directly above head. Yeah. Well, uh, not necessarily because um, right now we're 10 degrees above the equator. Okay. And right now, the, the, the uh, especially Jupiter and Saturn are way south right now. Oh, well, the worst it can go is minus 23. So right now it's probably around 50, 50 plus degrees from our place. And why is it important that you want planets to be as high as possible in the sky? Normally you get better conditions the higher the, plan the, you know, the object is. Right. I guess looking down at the horizon, you're looking through the most possible atmosphere. Yeah. And the higher you go up, you're looking through the least, least possible yeah. atmosphere. Okay. And so in that, in everything else you mentioned had to do with the same thing, which was air stability. Can you describe why that's important? Well, uh, 
normally when you have a uh, laminar flow or wind from the sea, it basically calms down the air. And uh, when, when, when it's stable, uh, you, you know, uh, it's like you're in outer space. Uh, the, the, the image comes in very clear without any uh, distortions. Right. So that's the main advantage. But I thought the uh, I thought the jet stream also was a laminar flow. It, it's not. Is it turbulent? It's turbulent. It's it's powerful. Uh, okay. So uh, okay. Yeah, it it can be. It is laminar flow, but it's uh, very uh, turbulent. Okay. So even though the atmosphere is moving, it's moving in a way that is consistent across the entire image plane. So you don't get that turbulent twinkly effect that a turbulent atmosphere would give you. So it's really okay. I mean, it really gives you nice steady seeing. Yeah. Okay. What kind of seeing do you get in the Philippines? Our average is eight over 10, but sometimes you get perfect seeing nine to 10 over 10. <laughs> and what, what kind of resolutions with that seeing can you produce on a planetary image? Uh, right now, uh, the best I'm doing is a uh, 0.13 arc second per pixel. <laughs> you hear that, Tony? Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> 0.1 arc seconds per pixel. Um, and so you're using a big telescope, I assume. Yeah, I'm using a uh, four, C14, a 14-inch mid-Cassegrain. Okay. Uh, which is basically, yeah, very good for the resolution I'm after. So a 14-inch <coughs> Celestron, are you using like the Edge HD model? or? No, I'm using the, the plane model. The right. problem with the HD is uh, you get more glass. Uh -huh. I want the highest transmission. Sure. And the more glass you add, the more reflections yeah. you add, so yeah. less light can actually pass through. Yeah. And you don't need the outside edges to be flat because you're imaging no. such a yeah, small, small field of view. Right, small field of view, tiny field of view. Yeah. Are you magnifying that more with Barlow's? Yes, I am. I'm using a astrophysics bar Barcon, uh -huh. uh, working at probably around 2.3 to 2.5 times. 2.5 times the magnification that the... Um, the 14 inch is already producing. So yeah. what's your total focal length? Uh, I think the 14 inch has a 3,800. Yeah. It's over three drive. meters. So, right. Yeah. 38 so, plus times uh, 2.5. Wow. That's more than probably 10,000. Yeah. 10,000 millimeters of focal length. With a 2.9 micron camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that is like just a camera lens, a 10,000 millimeter lens. You know, you see the people on the side of like a football stadium taking their, their photos of the players with a 200 millimeter lens. You know, imagine a 10,000 millimeter lens. The thing would be the size of a school bus, <laughs> you know? Um, so you've had a, a really interesting story and planetary imaging has given you a ton of really unique opportunities, including all the way up to Hubble. Right? Can you kind of tell us about the Hubble experience you have? Well, um, things started get, to get exciting in 2006 when I imaged Jupiter, and um, there was a white spot called Oval BA. And uh, when I imaged it, uh, I found out that it turned red. Uh, it's rather rare to have a red spot on Jupiter because these are very powerful storms. Uh, because of that discovery, I was able to. Uh, I was asked to join a Hubble team by Dr. Imka Depater of the UC Berkeley. And uh, I joined this team to, well, image Jupiter for, I think, three to four years. Wow. So it was fun. What an honor <laughs> to get asked to join the Hubble team. Everyone else in the world is having to ask, right? <laughs> yeah. What were, you, uh, what were you 
trying to do with this uh, observing campaign? Were you trying to figure out why it went from white to red, or were you trying to just figure out why it was there at all? What was the goal? Well, partly to yeah figure out why it turned red. Uh, we were trying to uh, measure the difference of the vorticity of the storm, but also to basically study Jupiter. Uh, well, the first image we had was uh, to to st- study more uh, the red oval BA, but uh, the succeeding was basically to understand the weather patterns of Jupiter when I became part of their team. Wow. Yeah. Hubble has the ability to to image a lot of features on the disk. So what did you find out? What was the what was the conclusion of the paper? Uh, well, it's still um, oh, not still very clear. It? We're, we're okay. still working on it. And uh, unfortunately, that spot turned white last year or yeah. earlier this year. So uh, we're back to the drawing board right now. But really, if wow, you think about amazing. how if you think about Hubble, um, uh, it's rather difficult to get Hubble time, even for my team. Uh, I know that uh, for every 5,000 uh, proposals for Hubble, only a few hundred, I mean, 100 plus are accepted, not wow. even 200. Yeah. So right. because of the competitive, uh, well, it's limited. That's why uh, most planetary astronomers really re- rely on amateur astronomers to contribute. So uh, they will get data. Uh, if you notice that a lot of uh, published papers on planetary astronomy always involve amateur astronomers because they get their data from us. We're the ones out there imaging planets every night for free. Right. And so this is something that, you know, with a, with a scope like Hubble, your exposure times, I'm surprised that Hubble can do exposure times that would be that short. I mean, gathering that no, much light actually, on such um, a... The exposure times of Hubble are actually long. Really? Uh, some of the images are 10 seconds exposure. Uh, some are even for the methane band. I've seen it go as high as 30 seconds. Wow. I would have thought that'd be severely overexposed. No. What are your exposure times here? I'm using about uh, one over 100th of a second wow. exposure time. Yeah, one hundredth of a second. Mm-hmm. And then it's doing up to 30 seconds. Yeah, uh, you should remember that uh, you know Hubble doesn't have a broadband filter. All the filters in Hubble are narrowband. I would say that you know practically all the images of Hubble are technically false color. Right. They're not real. You know RGB color. Uh, a lot. A lot of these images use a narrowband filter. That's why you have a long exposure. Sure. And secondly, Makes you know you're, you're using a chip that was made probably in the nineties. That's when they had the oh, last. Oh no, they've they've long since uh, upgraded that. WIPC three is the latest camera, and that was that was replaced in twenty yeah. two thousand nine. So uh, so that was just after your observations. So yeah, but it's got a it's got a brand new camera now. Yeah, but even even with uh, that camera, it's it's using a CITE yeah chip, which is developed you know a uh, few oh, I many see years point. before yeah, 2009. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. The detector is not uh, yeah. is not state of the art. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they because of because a lot of detectors have to be approved by NASA and then they have to be space qualified. Yeah. They tend to use much older technology than yes. say uh, the newer the ones out for the amateurs or ground-based observatories for that matter. You spend a lot of your time shooting Jupiter. What um, what causes these these features on Jupiter? Like like even the great red spot, what causes that? If I had an answer, then I'd probably written a, a lot of papers. Okay, so nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, actually, Jupiter is really a big mystery. Uh-huh. Uh, 
in fact, uh, there's a group of amateurs that are basically monitoring the weather, getting our images, and basically doing the measurements to see how the weather patterns are doing in Jupiter. A lot of, a lot of things we really don't know. In fact, um, we don't even know what's inside Jupiter. It's just now we do know that we were able to find out a few things about Jupiter, but still, we're still scratching the surface. That's why, you know, and the amateurs are really contributing a lot in our understanding of Jupiter. By just providing images, so they're just taking a lot of images and then scientists or, or astronomers are asking for those? Uh, yeah. What ways? In what ways are they contributing? Yeah, from our images, uh, they make measurements on each of the features on Jupiter and they correlate some of their images using different filters or in the case of Jupiter, uh, of Juno, uh, you know, there, there are different experiments there. Oh, okay. So they, they're, they're, because of the wide range of opportunities that amateurs have to observe all over the world, they can get these mm. features at any given time. And then, yes. And then I see. Okay. Well, that's really cool. And, and we do live in that time, don't we? I mean, this is a time where more than any other, probably that, that people, I mean, Dustin, like Dustin's made the point in the past, he doesn't see the difference, uh, between saying amateur or professional. Uh, he feels that, you know, they should just be astronomer. And I've made the point, well, it's a little more involved than that, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, this is where the, this, this distinction gets blurred, doesn't it? I mean, this is a, a time when if you are able to image the planet Jupiter in a reasonably, uh, consistent way, then you're contributing to science every bit as much as somebody who's operating the Hubble Space Telescope. So I agree that it's, that the distinction is probably, uh, you know, uh, informal. It doesn't really matter all that much, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good time to be an amateur for sure, especially if you want to contribute to science. Well, all I can say that we amateurs do it for fun. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, we do, you know, it, it's not something that we do it for life and death or something. We just do it because we enjoy it and uh, we're not getting anything out of it. No compensation, which, uh, which it should be, you know, it's a hobby that we do. We have our own day jobs that, uh, you know, uh, we have a family to take care of. Uh, the professionals, they're different. Um, they, you know, they they not only big use big telescopes. They they they, they do simulations, a lot of stuff which uh, will uh, probably way beyond what we're doing. But of course, the contribution of amateurs are very important, especially with the quality of the images we have now. You know, a lot of the images we have now were spacecraft quality 30, 40 years ago. So there's right. a huge difference now, even not just planetary, but even deep sky. And it's getting better by the day, especially yeah. the camera technology is advancing at the most rapid rate I've ever seen any technology advance. I mean, it is every day I feel like you're seeing something new come out with <laughs> cameras. Um, which camera line do you shoot? I use a QHY 290. A 290. And what made you go with that camera? Right now, it's the most sensitive to IR. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, other cameras are sen are very sensitive to RGB, but I need the IR sensitivity because I also image in methane band, which is a narrow band filter to image Jupiter. And one thing amazing about this filter is that it shows high altitude clouds of Jupiter. Wow. So you see these, uh, if there's an eruption or a new uh, storm that's coming up, you see this clearly in the methane band. Right. And so why uh, why QHY as a brand? Why did you choose QHY? Right now I'm happy with it uh -huh. because of the, uh, well, basically dust. <laughs> dust, because they use sealed chambers. Yeah, they use sealed chambers and uh, I never had a dust problem with them. Right. 
Yeah, they they have uh, some very high quality. I was just at AIC. Well, actually, I saw you there, yeah. Advanced Imaging Conference, and um, yeah, the the QHY table. They have the big four eleven and all these <laughs> yeah. these professional cameras. I mean, some of these cameras are fifty thousand dollars a piece, but uh, you know, for the professionals, it makes a lot of sense getting you know a monochrome camera with one hundred and fifty megapixels resolution. Yes. It's it's really impressive what they've been able to do over the last few years. And Doctor Q is a very committed individual to that. Uh, expansion and growth of the business and and really finding new avenues to to make things available for the amateur side as well so and making them affordable which is really the the, the big thing now right you have, you have cameras with you know megapixels yeah. for a fraction of the cost of what it was about 10 years ago it's yeah it's a night and day difference right yeah. i mean what was a fifteen thousand dollar camera now you can get for a thousand dollars in a lot of cases it's pretty pretty amazing yes so what? Uh, so you use a big because uh, I know I know the planetary, the aspiring planetary imagers that want to get to the level that you're shooting right now are going to wonder. Well, what's the equipment, right? What's the mount that you use? Uh, the mount I use right now is an astrophysics mount. Wow, top and the, end. Uh, and the reason why is because um, I leave my mount outside with just a tarp, yeah. so I need a high quality mount. And uh, astrophysics mounts are known to be, you know, they leave it outside in Antarctica. Yeah. So uh, it, it's quite reliable. In fact, it's the only thing that I haven't changed ever since I started imaging planets. It's my mount. It's been there since 2003. Still and running for it's you. Still running. Uh, no, no issues. Yeah, they're, they're phenomenal mounts. We actually we get them in here used all the time, and it's always a safe bet for us for that reason because we know this is going to work. And yeah. the team tests it, and it, it works every time. Yeah, I agree. They are they are great. Uh, so let's talk about lucky imaging. Because I could describe what, what I see it as, but I think you're probably a little better equipped to do so. So why don't you describe lucky imaging and tell people like kind of yeah. what that is? Well, imaging planets, uh, we have one big enemy, mm -hmm. which is the atmosphere. Right. And unfortunately, why is, it's, why is that the enemy? Well, um, it ruins our image mm -hmm. if, if if it's not stable. And uh, well, basically, we cannot live without it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so don't hate it too much. Uh, so we can't hate it too much, yeah. Uh, there are three ways, actually, to fight the atmosphere. The first yeah. is getting out of the atmosphere. We send space telescope outside. And the second is uh, adaptive optics, uh, which is being used by major observatories. Mm -hmm. But I would say, which is way beyond our budget. Neither of those first two are very cost-effective. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> you have to be a billionaire, probably, to have right. these. Uh, so what we have is lucky imaging, and it's basically using a video cam. Uh, in our case, uh, it's actually a modified security cam, which is basically what it is. It, these are in, not just security, but industrial cameras that are adapted to basically planetary imaging. Mm -hmm. So these are high-speed, uncompressed uh, cameras. So basically, the theory is you get each of those frames in a video are basically individual images. So if you take thousands of those, probably, you know, some of those are good, some of them are bad. Right. So we have software to basically sort this out and basically stack them and uh, yeah, to get an image. So that's why it's called Lucky. 
because you're lucky enough to get a few out of, uh, you know, maybe a hundred or a thousand. Yeah. So if you take 10,000 frames, you're okay with throwing away maybe 9,000 of them or more Yeah. because the ones that are good are going to be in that sweet spot of the atmosphere where it's stabilized for a fraction of a second and you got a really sharp image at yes. high magnification. Yes. And then you just take those out. So you have the software sort through all 10,000 images or whatever number it is and then find the ones that are perfect and stack those together. And yes. that's how you get this 0.1 yeah. arc seconds per yeah. pixel It's resolution. not even the whole image now because uh, we have multi-point alignment, so uh, which means that it can, it can be just one part that's sharp, so it'll keep it. Wow. Yeah. So even if it was bad, you can just have a tiny pocket of good image, and it will still keep that frame and just stack that portion. Yes. Yes. Wow. What about rotation? Because Jupiter spins much, much faster than the Earth. Yeah, I think a whole day on Jupiter is only like ten hours. Ten hours, right? yeah. Well, uh, even with rotation, uh, well, rotation limits how long we can capture. But there's a feature right now in the software called WinJupos, which is the rotation. So basically, what it does, it it basically no normalizes, aligns each of the uh, uh, features of Jupiter on the on its central meridian and stacks them, and, and you know, turn them back to a planet image, to a you know round image. So how would that work though? Because if you're going to be out there for say, you know, an hour, that in a whole, an entire day, meaning Jupiter does a full rotation every 10 hours, that's a big change over the course of an hour. Well, um, I would say that uh, for my image with Saturn, I actually capture close to an hour of data, one hour data to get, uh, to get a good image. Yeah. And you can see all those low contrast uh, storms in Saturn, which we can usually before could only be resolved when using Hubble. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're doing it now underground. Uh, you, know, you can actually derotate up to one hour. So uh, wow. what you do, you just, you know, for, for uh, you know, you get a set probably. For Jupiter, I usually do about four to five on good seeing and more when seeing is not perfect or transparency is not good. Right. So, uh, I just get a lot of image continuously, RGB, RGB, RGB. Uh, for Saturn, uh, I just take an image uh, for 48 minutes. Hmm. Uh, so uh, RGB sets for 48 minutes to one hour. 48 Are these minutes. filter wheels or are, are they inherent yeah. in the camera? Filter wheels, filter wheels. Okay. And so why, uh, why use it? It sounds like a lot of work having to do all of that so fast. I mean, if I switch a filter, I'll stay on that filter all night, one filter all night. So it's not like, I'm not racing the clock, right? But with planetary, you're really up against the clock. Yes. Why stay with a monochrome camera with filters? Well, the problem with using color is that um, when the planet is below 70 degrees, you have atmospheric dispersion. Mm -hmm. So uh, the three colors will not uh, basically focus on the same plane. So, and secondly, you notice the color cam has, uh, you know, those Bayer filters, right? Which basically reduces the sensitivity of the, the the chip, especially when you're taking. And the problem with color cam, you cannot take image like methane ban or UV, right? Which is a handicap. Sure. And so the um, the colors don't come to focus at the same at the same plane, yeah. right? But don't they have uh, ADC, so uh, atmospheric dispersion correctors, to correct for that? Does that work? Yeah, well, it works to a point, but okay. I've also heard some people having a hard time using it. So, 
And so I guess it's just, if yeah. you don't have to deal with it, yeah. if you use a monochrome, then why not just yeah, use yeah. a monochrome with the filter wheel? Yeah. Well, in an ideal situation, uh, you know, uh, using an ADC would work probably. But the thing is, uh, when the planet is low in the sky and seeing is not good, it's tough to align using ADC. Because when you have the planet jumping up, you know, jumping around, it's 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 that's what people told me. Um, I, I've you know given a lot of talks with people. Sure, I haven't really used the ADC, or you know, do I need to use it because of my camera? Mm -hmm. But from what I heard from people, it's it's kind of difficult to use. And do you um, so whenever you switch filters, then you go from red to green. Do you have to refocus in between? Technically, uh, red and green will have the same focus, and blue will be slightly out of focus. Okay. Um, for those who have a computer-controlled focuser, I would recommend that you refocus it. But in my case, I don't have one. So uh, I just don't refocus on blue and just use software to sharpen the blue. And okay. yeah, I've been successful with it. Well, yeah, obviously, right? It's, it's close enough then yeah. that you can bring it back yeah. after, in post-processing. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, it makes sense, though. It makes sense that it would be the blues and the purples that would shift the most out. But um, yeah, I've, I've never thought about that, that you would have that issue. Is there a, and I don't do much planetary imaging. It's all deep space for me, really long exposure stuff. Um, I've only ever done it one time, and it was a picture of the sun, so it was solar. Okay. Right. Um, but it, it was a fun process. It's very, it's so different than deep space. Right. But I found it, uh, I found it a real challenge to focus. And at the time I was told that the automated focus routines still weren't up to par with what people were getting just manually focusing in. And that it was more of a feel based yeah. focus for planetary. What, what are your thoughts there? Uh, for planetary focusing, um, yeah. You have to do it uh, manually, but with a motorized focuser, uh, it's difficult to use. You know, you touch the knob and the whole thing just shakes like crazy. Right. You're not going to get a good focus. But uh, I have a focus method that worked for me. It's called jogging. Okay. So what I do is I go jog in and out of focus and try to get the feel of where the midpoint is. Sure. And basically go there. Uh, when seeing is good, it's very easy to focus. But when seeing is bad, you know, I just basically take a guess on where the midpoint is and uh, have it there. Doing it about five, yeah. six times, you'll get a feel of where it is. Well, that's that's interesting because you can do that with the stars too. That's actually what focusing routines do. They create yeah. this V curve. Yes. And it's easier to measure, you know, an accurate focus. I mean, even visually, when something's out of focus than when it is. When yeah. something's in focus, it's hard to tell if it's exact, if it's critical focus or if it's if it's slightly out. But when something's out of focus on both sides of that focus, it's yeah. easy to see exactly yeah. where they come into the same amount of out of focus yeah. on both sides. Yes. So yeah, if you look for those two spots, then you know right in the middle is where you'd want to be at perfect focus. Well, there's a technique also for Jupiter. Uh, if you can find one of the, its moons like EO or uh, Europa, mm -hmm. it's it'll be a lot easier to focus. Just focus those two moons or one of the moons. For Saturn, um, I would use the Cassini division to get it as sharp as possible. Okay. And uh, yeah, that, that, that really helps a lot. Because it gives you a little more contrast. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. And the moons of Jupiter just wouldn't be quite as bright. And so it's a smaller point yeah. source. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Wow, all the little tricks. Well, in planetary imaging, it's those little things that make the perfect image from the focus uh, 
there's even you cool your OTA, getting things ready, mm-hmm. um, being patient and getting you know the the right conditions. Uh, these little things add up to well the perfect image. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about this security camera. Uh, that is that your main imager that you use right now. Well, basically the imager that I have is already an astro camera. But I started when I started. I started getting cameras from uh, a source which basically makes industrial cameras, security cameras. And the advantage is they they are uncompressed and they have high frame rates, and yes. so you're and able very to sensitive. get these good, and and you're able to get these uh, images. Uh, off of an off-the-shelf uh, component that isn't designed for use in telescopes. So my question to both of you is this. Uh, listening to, we were talking earlier about the improvements in detectors and how QHY is committed to bringing these uh, really high-end cameras down, more affordable for everybody else. But I, it, when it comes to planetary imaging, it seems to me that the real innovation here isn't the cameras nor the detectors. It is the software that's being used to process these frame rates. And I'd like to get your, both of your comments on that because you both do it so much. It's like these, the real advances here. I remember when I first started planetary imaging, the thing to get was this Philips webcam that happened to be a, yes, exactly. And it was 640 by 480. And, but what you, and you would just take video with it, focus it and take video download those images, something called regist. I think it was Registax would actually take it yes. and split it up and then, and then do uh, make an algorithm that sharp pit threw away the crappy ones and did some calculations on the good ones and, and did all the stuff you're talking about. Now it sounds like things have gotten a lot better than that. So w- when it comes to planetary imaging, this is my question is the real advance here, the software or the hardware? Actually, I would say both. Uh, because you know you can't do one thing without the other. First of all, the hardware—it's not just a yeah, but camera. The hardware sounds pretty simple compared to what you would need for deep sky stuff. Well, it's not just the camera that has improved, but also the the computer hardware. Uh, you have a USB three high speed interface, faster computers. Because when you process these things, uh, I'm using a quad core working at four point three gigahertz. And it takes me two hours to process. Just imagine if you had a single core or a slower computer. Yeah. So uh, basically, it's it's all, all, all the above the hardware. We have the computer coming in, faster computers, more memory, um, faster interfaces, uh, the solid state drives coming in. Then you have this free software. And I would say, you know, the thing free, you have these guys uh, making software for... S- not not just uh, stacking, but number one, camera, camera control. Basically, for us uh, planetary imagers, uh, you know, uh, Thorsten uh, made fire capture, and uh, you know, it's a wonderful software. He does it, you know, for free. Uh, then you have uh, the the, uh, the stacking softwares like Registax and AutoStacker. Is it is it still out there, Registax? <laughs> I we we actually use Registax to for the wavelets to to sharpen the image. You know, you have ah, this okay. free software to sharpen image. I remember in the what was it on two thousand six, I came here to San Diego and uh, basically met with Don Burns. Um, he's a he's actually you know he 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 used to have a adaptive optics. Uh, he used to sell adaptive optics before and. Uh, we actually he tried to sharpen the image using the convolution with maxim dl 
and compare mm -hmm. the results with wavelets. And uh, we were able to get the same results. It took uh, Maxim probably about three minutes to do the deconvolution and uh, Registax uh, probably one second to do the same thing. So, oh, so uh, uh, Registax is using wavelet, uh, wavelet wavelets deconvolution. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you know, uh, we 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 got we uh, we got this uh, yeah uh, sharpening software for free. Then uh, you have WinJupose, which basically is a tool right now to do measurements on Jupiter. It was basically cr created by the JUPOS team. This is a, a group in Europe which basically monitors the features on Jupiter, the storms, the directions, the speeds, and they incorporated a function called derotation, which really is the game changer. It uh, allows us to image Jupiter beyond what is limited with the rotation of the planet. So these software hardware uh, innovations basically allow us to basically get I would say almost spacecraft quality on our planet image. Wow, I've always called the uh, the rapid um, frame rates that you get with these with these cameras sort of a poor man's adaptive optics because instead of having to you call it lucky imaging, I was I used to call it poor man's adaptive optics because it was maybe some tiny fraction out of all the frames you took would actually have sub arc second quality, which is what you're after when you uh, use adaptive optics anyway. So it's uh, just a matter of a numbers game where you just take more frames to get what you're after. Actually, the professionals actually call this speckle imaging. They actually did this yeah, in the 70s. Uh, I know uh, Heidi Hamill uh, started using it before. And I think they also did it during the Schumacher-Levy 9 impact. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's something that the professionals first developed and uh, slowly, uh, you know, I think that the revolution was the webcam. You have this cheap uh, yeah. cameras. Yeah. I, I also started with a 2U cam. And, uh, you know, you have a camera for a few few dollars and uh, you just yeah, it was buy like a hundred bucks, something like that. <laughs> yeah, a hundred bucks. And you buy a mug adapter from this guy in Australia. That's to, right. Uh, who made it just for that. You know, just what I'm talking about. Yeah. This yeah. Is like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so see, so, I'm not that old, Dustin, although I am old. It's not quite that old. I didn't even <laughs> I mean, say I mean, anything. At least at some point I transitioned from film. <laughs> Yeah, to, to at least digital. So <laughs> there was a period of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I just ask you briefly about this uh, IR stuff you're doing? Because you said that you are imaging in the methane uh, band. What band. wavelength is that? It's uh, about eight eight hundred eighty nine nanometers. Eight eighty nine nanometers. Now, water vapor isn't a problem for you because in a lot of areas no. of the world, no, uh, we can capture. Okay, so uh, yeah. Okay, so you don't have to worry about water vapor. You, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have do problem. We we have very high humidity back home, but uh, I have a um, a dew shield which helps. Oh no, that's not what I meant. I'm sorry. So anybody who's imaging in the infrared knows that the big problem is is the water vapor in the atmosphere. Water One vapor. of the reasons they what they build uh, telescopes in Hawaii at the altitude they do is it's very dry. Another that's also why they do oh, it okay. in Chile. There's very little water vapor in the atmosphere. So I'm curious. This but there's dips in where the water vapor can uh, where it doesn't exist, right? So you can you can image in those bands. And so I was going to ask you, this band that you're looking at now must be one of those areas where there isn't much water vapor. Yeah, I don't think water about. vapor is a problem in near okay. infrared. Normally okay. in mid and and uh, 
you know, uh, low, uh, you know, uh, longer infrared. That's where you have a problem. You know, you have uh, you know three to five microns. That's a big problem with water vapor. But for us in the near infrared, below uh, one uh, one uh, micron, I don't think it's a problem. And what did you see on Jupiter at this wavelength? You can see the high altitude clouds on Jupiter. Uh, you know, the great red spot is bright on methane band. If there's an outbreak or a storm or an impact remnant, these are bright in methane band, very bright. So these are high altitude clouds on Jupiter. Oh, wow. And do you, do you get a lot of contrast, a lot of detail? Oh, yeah. At these altitudes? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. And and what sort of exposures? Uh, and again, are you doing this with a webcam or not the webcam? Yes. With, uh, with a cam? Well, with the camera I'm using, well, basically, I would say what the camera I'm using now is uh, AstroCam. It's actually a cooled uh, 290, mm. uh, but I don't use the cooler. Um, basically, uh, I, I use about uh, one-sixth to one-eighth of a second exposure. And uh, I use two, two by two binning to make it brighter, uh, in, in which case I, I get a lot of hot spots, uh, hot pixels. So uh, I have to do dark subtract. So I take dark frames. Yeah, there's really no reason to cool the camera because your exposures are so short, right? Uh, actually, um, there's also there's actually one reason not to turn on. Actually, when I got the cool cam, that's the first thing I actually did. I fired up the cooler uh, to see because, uh, well, if it's cool, you get less noise. Sure. There's just one problem with the cool cam, and that's the fan. Oh, it introduces shakes. vibration right. and basically ruins the image. So in the end, uh, I just stopped using the cooler. Right. Well, it still has the passive cooling of the heat sink. Yes, it, which really helps. That's why I, I keep on using it. Um, my 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 camera works at ambient temperature, mm -hmm. while if I use an uncooled cam, it goes up to around 50 degrees centigrade. Right. Chris, do you do a lot of outreach with all of this? You seem very passionate about the science side, not just the imaging, the, the fun aspect. Do you do a lot of outreach for this? Yeah, I actually do a lot of outreach back home. We, uh, it's not just on planetary imaging, but also to, to, to get people interested in science. We set up, I'm involved with the University of San Carlos Astronomical Society, which I founded in the 80s. And uh, I help you know, set up telescopes, uh, give lectures to students, yeah, back home. And what's the outreach like in the Philippines? What, what kind of stuff are you doing there? Uh, you know, we set up telescopes in shopping malls. In shopping on, malls. In, in different places, sometimes in the university. Nice. Uh, you get, yeah, we get thousands of people there. Wow, thousands. Are you, <laughs> are you doing, um, so it's not, it's not just planetary. You're, are you doing like narrowband imaging to show people or, or what kind of stuff? No, are you not doing? imaging, just visual. Oh, visual. Okay. Show, show people visual, uh, you know, the, the, the planets, the, if if possible, you know, bright deep sky objects that can be seen in, in the city. Yeah. I actually use some filters to, you know, ultra block filters or, you know, nebula filters to help people see these things. Um, it's, it's interesting because whenever you do outreach, uh, people are interested in astronomy, mm -hmm. but never get a chance uh, with nobody really, you know, teaching them what to do. Um, uh, it, it's uh, you know we have we have to do a lot of outreach to get people involved, especially in this age of ignorance. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's funny because uh, you know uh, even even ten years ago, nobody would think uh, you have this group of crazies who would be saying that the Earth is flat. No, nobody would take these guys seriously. But you know, right now it's it's nuts. 
Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> and, and we building and building steam powered rockets to test it. And all oh that. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, with the advent of the internet, we have this glorification of stupidity mm-hmm. going out. Uh, you know, a lot of things. God, well that, said, man. Well that, said. That. that uh, yeah. You know, we have basically, you know, settled with science is now questioned, which is really insane. To be fair, though, the the Flat Earth Society has been around for hundreds of years. They have been around in in mostly England, uh, and it's only been so they've always been around for quite a while. But it has exploded in interest, and the current Flat Earthers, the ones in the United States, are apparently not affiliated with the Flat Earth Society, which is much haughtier, I suppose, but they, and they don't have anything to do with each other, but, uh, they have been, this kind of thinking has been around a while, uh, this contrarian thinking, but it's gotten, as you said, the glorification, would you say glorification of stupidity? Stupidity. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, yes, that has been, uh, on the rise for quite some time. The problem is that, uh, people have lost having this critical mind, you know, this saying that people are so open-minded their their brains start falling out. So... <laughs> Yeah, the minds. Yeah, there's such a thing as too too much of an open mind, right? Yeah, which is really frustrating when you're doing, uh, you know, an outreach and somebody would call you and start accusing you. Oh, you're in league with NASA. Oh yeah, so so that's that's a pretty big deal in the Philippines, and there's a lot of that there, a lot of distrust in uh, science. Actually, we never had that problem until the internet, and you have these crazy basketball players saying these things. Oh yeah, uh, that you know, yeah. I never had I never had this problem ten years ago. Uh, <laughs> it's just yeah, now, I, uh, you know, things like evolution—they're taught to us, you know, without question. I mean, it's it's something that we probably t- took for granted now with the advent of internet. And the problem is that, especially back home, people think Americans know everything. So when we have these Americans who are saying that the Earth is flat, you know, it, it gives us a lot of problems. You know, we have yeah. to explain to these people, but, you know, the thing is, th- the way they make these videos, uh, you have to distrust whatever the scientists are saying. That's kind of stupid. Right, yeah, well, right. Well, nothing moves faster than the speed of light except bad information, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very true. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Well, what are, can you give us a sense of what the night skies are like in the Philippines? I mean, presumably you're doing your outreach in some of the bigger cities, right? What's the night sky like there? It's just like uh, yeah, setting up in downtown San Diego. Yeah, uh, okay. We, I live in a big city, so with a population of probably about uh, a million plus. So okay. uh, we have heavy light pollution back home. But it's not for planetary. It's really not a problem. Obviously. Yeah, for planetary, it's not a problem. But there are some bright deep sky objects. But one thing nice about the Philippines, I can see objects like 47 Tucane, which is very south, uh, the second brightest uh, globular cluster. Uh, Omega Centauri is quite high. You can see a lot of southern sky, plus a line with Polaris. So you get yeah. the best of both worlds. Yeah, you still don't lose the North Star, <laughs> yeah. which is nice. Well, you know, it's I've often tried to make the case with these uh, flat earthers and some of the people that don't believe in some parts of science that with the advent of the Internet, yes, bad information does get distributed just as much as good information. But it also gives people the ability to clump together in these communities that they reinforce <laughs> each other and they start to feel as if they belong. And then oh, they yeah. got, and then they get these people who naturally distrust a lot of things, science among them. 
And they start finding other like-minded thinkers that also distrust science and they reinforce each other's beliefs and but they build an emotional connection, an emotional community. And so then, but when, when that's happened, there's no, there's no way you're ever going to change anybody's mind or logically reason with them in any way uh, to get them to, to overcome this, these notions that they're holding. They're emotionally invested now. And to give up that community would be a real loss to them. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. And, Unfortunately, uh, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And I think that's why they grow so much in this in this day and age. Well, you know, there are a lot of crazy things like the UFOs, uh, which, you know, part and parcel of when you're doing outreach, uh, you know, these things come up. You get asked about uh, UFOs a lot and aliens. And oh, yeah. Do you see them in your images? Do you see them on Jupiter? That yes. kind of stuff. Uh, the worst thing was, remember 2012? Oh my gosh! Oh yes, <laughs> please, that was elaborate. My favorite. <laughs> please elaborate. Please uh, elaborate. I I hate it because we had a lot of um, outreach during that time, and that's the first thing that questions will the world end in 2012. And I just said, why don't you ask me in 2013? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was and it, and it, it, the, the alliteration the 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 numerical alliteration was perfect. It was 12, 12, 2012 was when the Mayan calendar, this long form of the Mayan calendar was going to come to a, an end and then start again. Right. Yeah. And uh, everybody, it was got blown out of proportion so big that everybody thought that, well, this must mean that the Mayans knew something the rest of us didn't. <laughs> and this, it was like some 75,000 year cycle, right? It was huge, right? It was yeah. a huge cycle that was about to come to an end, but everybody would forget to say, and then start again. Just like when yeah. you go from December 31st to January mm. 1st, it is the end of a year. Yes, but it's not the end of every year. It's going to start another one. And and so uh, that was a hard concept. And then you had people like Michio Kaku, of all people. He's this uh, physicist who goes on Fox News a lot and tries to uh, scare people to death. So we had the we had the Mayan calendar ending. We had the sun in a maximum cycle. And we had uh, some people talking about this planet called Nibiru. And so oh. all three of these things were coming together. And uh, you Michio Kaku going movie. on talking about... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, already, I I forgot the name of that one, but... Uh, 2012. I think. Oh, that's right. That's right. That was it. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, that, that, that was a bad time. Anyway, um, he was making things so much worse with his going on, saying that oh, the solar yeah. cycle was going to cause CMEs that put us back in the agrarian age. We weren't just going <laughs> to... You know, we're going to lose all of our technology and somehow suddenly forget that, you know, we developed all this ta technology, and so we're going to be riding horses and and carriages and, and all of our electronics <laughs> will stop working. It was a ridiculous well, time. Well, uh, if a Carrington event would happen, then yeah, we'd be in big trouble. <laughs> we, we would, that's true, but we would not, we could fix it. <laughs> it's not going to be a permanent uh, situation where we don't, yeah, we things. could fix it, but it will take time. I've heard and money. Yes. Yeah. I've heard that at least, uh, probably minimum of 10 years. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, we had uh, I think Phil Plate was on one of our earliest podcasts, yeah. and he said something similar. Where these yeah. uh, these Carrington events, if they hit her directly, uh, the Earth, then it's going to damage just about every uh, grid we've got. But that wasn't the point Michio Kaku was making. He was just oh, okay. talking yeah. about uh, general general solar activity cycles, and uh, and the odds of a Carrington event hitting us while small would also mm. be quite catastrophic and worth hardening ourselves. Against. What I heard that, that. Uh, we'll be okay in the equator. So I'm fine. 
Are you? <laughs> oh, because you're so far away from the North Magnetic Pole. Although you know yeah. the magnetic the magnetic uh, field is shifting on Earth, so. Yeah, it's still far away from us, so we should be okay. <laughs> well, can I ask you about uh, yeah. just the science communication, uh, the science education uh, that goes on in the Philippines? Is it is it really robust? Do you guys have a good science program yeah, out there? Uh, well, well, basically, uh, I would say it's the same as here in the U.S. Is it? Uh, good. Yeah, good. yeah. It's uh, it's it's probably a little probably dated and more uh, manually uh, done. But uh, I would say that I think it's it's uh, in, in some ways you know it's it's like teaching the old way. Oh, speaking about magnetic field, uh, you know what? This is one thing that Juno <laughs> discovered about Jupiter, uh, which is quite interesting because uh, we just had some new data from Juno about the you know Juno was made to make us understand the insides of Jupiter, and it made some very shocking discoveries. The first uh, one of the discoveries, the magnetic field. Normally, we would think that. Like the Earth, which is a liquid iron core, you have a magnetic field which basically emanates on the North and South Pole. Right. And uh, what shocked us with Jupiter is that Jupiter behaves more like the Sun than Jupiter, than, than Earth. Yeah. If you think about the Sun, where does the magnetic field emanate from? Sunspots. Yeah. Well, that's where it comes out, but it's generated. The, the, the Sun yeah. has a dynamo too, so yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. magnetic yeah, field has, is internal as well yeah in, in jupiter it's generated on the uh, uh metallic hydrogen mantle and uh it has actually three magnetic field sources one is in the south pole the other is offset away from the north pole and another one in the equator well i can it doesn't surprise me because in many ways jupiter is like a uh star and i, I would imagine most gas giants are i don't we, i mean the only two Not, we've studied are, are the ones in our solar system but yeah. you know i can imagine that they would behave very similarly to a star uh, with their magnetic fields especially uh it's still a surprise because really uh it, you know I, I think it's a misnomer to call even Jupiter, a failed star, because it's nowhere. No, no, near I don't mean. I don't mean. To, I don't mean yeah, to say yeah. that. I just yeah. mean to say that its behavior, it, because it's a gas giant, would have many properties of a big ball of gas, right? And so, yeah. this, especially plasmas, when plasmas are involved. So, yeah. that's why I say that. I don't mean to say that it was a failed star because it's just not big enough. But yeah. uh, there are other stars that come close, brown dwarfs in particular. But the distinction mm. between a Jupiter-sized planet and a brown dwarf is Huge. also quite confusing. So, yeah. um, I wanted to ask you about Juno since you brought it up. So Juno is this probe. It's going around Jupiter. It's going, it's dipping inside the magnetic field of the, of the planet and getting really close to the sun or to the planet. And as you point out, it's looking below the upper layer of the gas uh, clouds, the top layer of the gas of the clouds. I've known some amateurs who have taken that Juno data and, and actually processed it into some really beautiful animations. And I wonder if that's something you thought of doing. Uh, because you can get access to that Juno data uh, from, yeah, I, from Juno Camp, right? Yes. And and uh, do you have you ever thought about processing that data, or is it just not interesting? Actually, uh, once in a while I do process it, but uh, most of those are uh, actually processed by an amateur astronomer. You know, one thing about Juno: Juno was a is a low budget ca uh, mission, right. mm -hmm. and that camera, the Juno Cam, was just made as an afterthought. It's so low budget that uh, in one chip they actually slice filters five filters in front of that chip. So if you notice, if you look at the raw image of Juno, you, you'll see a sliced uh, image of different filters on one image. And it's just that the, as the, you know, the spacecraft rotates once every three minutes, it scans an area uh, 
an area or the target area and basically takes multiple image. Now, it's on these strips that are basically assembled uh, to make a color image. Uh, at first, I thought NASA was crazy when I saw this configuration, but <laughs> it, it, it actually worked. I mean, you know, it, it uses a similar chip to an ST2000 and uh, cut it in five. And uh, basically, yeah. uh, you know, a strip filters. That's how, that's how low budget. And one thing interesting is this was supposed to be a public cam. Well, it is a public cam. It mm -hmm. is where uh, the citizen scientists can get involved with the spacecraft by basically first contributing our images. Uh, we, we can actually uh, discuss about what's going on and vote for the targets. It's in, in, in the Juno website where you can choose what targets uh, uh, Juno will take. And lastly, to process this image right now, I really don't have time. I do some, you know, some processing with the, you know, already processed image. I spend most of my time capturing image than you know processing. I just enjoy whatever you know others uh, process in Juno. I have a good friend in Germany who does that yeah. pretty regularly, and his uh, his his work is just unbelievably great. And I did a hangout with him on it, and he was explaining how he processed the images. And it, you're right, it's not trivial. The setup is not a very yeah. standard one, so it takes some work. But you know, as you point out rightly, I think it was the Planetary Society, right, that sponsored the JunoCam, or but but JunoCam was put on there as a public resource. That's right, and it's uh, the yeah. one instrument that seems to be getting. Well, because it takes pictures, gets a lot of the uh, the publicity. Fame, but that's right, yeah. the publicity. So, but if you do want to get involved, if you're out there listening and you want to get involved in imaging, you can get some state of the art data <laughs> from Jupiter itself and uh, and make some stunning animations. And you don't get the whole field, the whole disc, because Ju uh, Juno is so close, especially during the flybys. I think it's only a few a few hundred thousand kilometers above this the, the cloud decks. Uh, so. Um, no, not so even a few really few close. thousand kilometers. Oh, is it even closer? Okay, yeah, so a few thousand. very close. Yeah, it's, so it gets real close. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast and just to be able Most to talk definitely. to you at, at AIC and uh, been able to spend a little time together. But uh, huge fan of your work. I think everybody in this building is. And if people haven't seen your work, where's the best place to go to see all all the things you're doing? Uh, I have it in uh, in my website at astro.christone.net. Okay. So, uh, or you can Google Google me, Christopher Go uh, Planets or Jupiter or something. Yeah, I just did actually. I just typed in uh, Christopher Go Planetary, and it mm -hmm. pulls everything up. Looks like you have not just your website, but a lot of people are resharing everything you're doing. But yeah. the work is phenomenal. I mean, it's it's so good. You're right. It is right on the line of what looks like it would have to be taken by a spacecraft. So it's incredible, incredible work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. I look forward to, to, I haven't checked out your images. I'm about to go do that. I just found out about you, uh, about an hour ago. So I'm looking forward to seeing what your, what your work looks like. So I'm really glad you're out there doing this. I'm also really glad you're out there sharing it, uh, in the Philippines and, uh, getting the public involved. So, uh, good, excellent work. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you. Okay, well, our guest today was uh, Christopher Goes, as we just pointed out, a planetary imager extraordinaire. So please check him out online in, in all the places we just mentioned. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. And as always, keep looking up. 
Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.